If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Santa Ana. In episode one, we heard about the French pastry war where Santa Anna lost his leg. We learned about his missed opportunity to be a chewing gum titan. We also learned that if you want to control Mexico, all you need is an army. And Santa Anna was always able to pull that army together. But let's get back to the story about the Alamo and how he blew it with Sam Houston. He should have won that battle, but instead he was crushed in 18 minutes. I preferred being on the saddle. I said before, I preferred to put down revolution. And these Americanos did not appreciate what they were given. They took these lands, they took the opportunities that we gave them, and they decided they were going to make them their own. We could not stand for that. As I said no. before, if we let them do this, they will continue to take and take. And so that was it. You were going to draw the line. So, so then where does the – what happens next? Is this where the Alamo happens? Yes, it does. So, so please tell February me, what happens 20. next? So I will begin to put a force together at San Luis Potosí. Unfortunately, I don't have funds to truly build a very well-supplied army, but we will put a force together of close to 5,000 men. We will then march out and head to Texas. I will lead the 1st Division, and I will have my 3rd in command, General Jose Orea will come up the coastline of Texas and we'll have a two-pronged attack. We will take the Alamo and they will take the fort in Goliath. So we will arrive in San Antonio de Bejar on February 23rd of, 18, of 1836 and my army will consist of almost 2,000 men and we will surround the Alamo they will have roughly around close to 200 men inside the Alamo. And we will siege the Alamo for 13 days, waiting to see if they will get reinforcements. We are very overextended. I want to get back to Mexico City because you never know what can happen. And I need to get back there to see what's happening with the government. So my hope is that San Houston would show up, being supposedly in charge of this Texian army. And as I have sent General Orea on the coastline for him to take care of the force that has assembled there under a Colonel Fanning. We wait the 13 days. They get one group of reinforcements, 32 men on horseback from the town of Gonzalez. We allow them into the fort. What is 32 men on horses? It's not going to make a difference for them. We allow them into the Alamo. So now they are roughly at 189 to 200-something men. Houston has not arrived. There's no army to, to hear of, but it's on its way. On March 2nd, we hear news that a Texian government has declared independence from Mexico. As you know, I was very upset to hear this, and 
I now wonder if Houston will come aid these rebels. Hearing rumors from our spies that Houston is on his way to the Alamo with a massive force, I must admit it, it startled me a bit because now knowing they have established themselves, that maybe he has this large force. So on March 6, 1836, I decided to attack, taking care of them. Now, many people will ask me, why didn't we just surround the Alamo, move away, and go after some Houston and these politicians? You have to understand that military victories were also political victories. For every military victory, my name is remembered. And this will help me to continue to grow in my country. So we could not just leave the Alamo. It had to be a victory. There had to be a battle to be remembered. So on March 6th of 1836, we will attack the Alamo at dawn. It is a bloody battle, 45 minutes at most. We will lose close to 600 men, three to 600 in that range. The Texians, as I said before, 189 to 200 men. They will fight valiantly, but they will lose. Travis, the commander, will die somewhere on the north wall. You have Jim Bowie will be inside one of the rooms near the southwest wall. I believe he may have even been dead before the final assault. He was very sick from what I understand. And then the most famous of these defenders, David Crockett was fighting near the wooden fence that's near the front of the church. He was probably one of the last fighters. He was brought to me after the battle. And as you remember, we talked earlier about the Tonel Decree. My orders were to make sure no one was left standing. He was brought out to me along with eight other prisoners. And I looked to my officers and said, kill them all. Had them killed. After that, there were women and children who were still inside the church. They were, and there were a few slaves as well. They were all spared. Dickinson, who was there with her daughter, who I remember vividly because she was a cute little girl, I even offered to adopt her since she no longer had a father. We'd been killed in the, in the assault. Her mother declined my offer, but I did allow her to leave and tell, to go tell Sam Houston what she saw here, that this is a fate that becomes a pirate. So you let all of them go to tell this tale of the Alamo, and then I guess that story riled up the Americans because this battle was not... You weren't done with this battle, obviously. Before I ask you what happened next, though... You had mentioned William Travis, and what did you know of William Travis prior to the battle? All I remember of this Travis was that he was a hothead, so to speak, an attorney who, who basically was starting trouble in the town of Anawak. He was starting trouble there, talking of revolution, and these things were said to us. And when I heard he was at the Alamo, it did not surprise me that he was involved with it. I see. So at this point, you were looking for him. Absolutely. Yes, he was 
He's one of our people on our list as a troublemaker. Okay. What about Crockett, David Crockett? Obviously, he was extremely well-known, and it sounds like he was an extraordinary fighter. What can you tell me about him? What was your knowledge of him? Or did you have any I knowledge? I truly did not. I did not know much about this man prior to this conflict. I had heard his name mentioned by my aide-de-camp, Daniel Juan Almonte. Almonte really did not give me much information on him. I knew he was in the Alamo after the fact. So then the battle is over. Sounds like it went very quick. And all the women and children are left to go. Now, I understand why you have to let the women and children go. But is that something that you maybe wish that you hadn't done based on what happened next? I am a man of honor, sir. I was not going to kill women and children. Yeah, no, I think it makes complete sense. It just it does seem, though, that the women and children then went to Sam Houston, and then there was a battle that happened after this. And was that... How long did it take before you and Sam Houston met? We would face off with General Sam Houston on the San Jacinto River on April 21st of 1836. I will admit that I was a bit high-strung, and after being victorious at the Alamo, and after hearing of the victories of General Rea, he had been victorious at San Patricio, Padulce, and then at Beto Creek, which was a conflict outside of the Presidio there in Goliath. I believed that we would defeat him and be able to head back to Mexico City. I, looking back on it today, I made a big mistake. The big mistake that I made was separating my forces. I rode off in advance after spending a few days in San Antonio de Bejar, rode in, in advance with my dragoons, trying to find San Houston. I sent some of my other generals to find these politicians, to write them down, especially the Tejano, who were involved, Jose Antonio de Barro, de Zavala. I wanted them dead. So when I arrived and see the Texian army, San Houston is actually put together a rather large force. His force is around 900 men, and our numbers are very close. We sit across the field from each other, and I'm not ready to attack, because I'm still waiting for reinforcements. On the 20th of April, there is some skirmishing, but it's just basically to see where we both stand. Eventually that evening, I will receive the reinforcements under General Cost, finally will arrive from San Antonio de Bejar, but his troops are exhausted, as many of my troops are. I had not slept the whole evening of the 20th. So on the 21st, we are expecting an attack from Houston, and as far as I now stand, with Cosa's men arriving, a little over 1,200 men. So we have a slight advantage over the Americanos, but all day long we will stand and wait across this field, and nothing will happen. Late afternoon will arrive. We realize that there's not going to be an attack from Houston. So we decide to put on our forces. And I decide to take a nap. I am exhausted. I put General Castrion in charge of the field. Tell him to let me know should, some, should there be any movement by the Texans. The Mexican cavalry has been dismounted. The horses are being fed and watered. Our 
soldiers are bedding down, relaxing, expecting nothing to happen. Late afternoon, Sam Houston and his army decide to attack. They come across the field, 100 yards away, fire the cannon. My troops totally unprepared. I break out of my tent, trying to get my forces to stand and form up. But then what helps the Texians is they basically don't fight like a regular army. These are militiamen, volunteers. So they stand and they fire a volley. I remember them firing a volley. The cannon is firing. They have two cannons on the field. They fire a volley, and then the Texians, they basically charge our barricade. And that's probably why they are victorious, because it's like when you see an angry mob, and they just are in full force attacking you. They scare my men, and my men break. They, they advance on the left side of my barricade, which is where General Koss and his men were at there. Most of these men were the militia, were not true fighting men, true soldiers. They break. And the, my regulars who see them break, they break as well. So it is a lost fight. It's an 18-minute battle. The Texans overrun the barricade. I try to form up my men. General Castrillon is out there trying to form up men as well. We are unable to do that. I am forced to mount one of my Dragoon's horses, and I make a break for it. I'm able to get away. We lose over 600 men in the battle, but I do make my escape. I will have to hide in the marsh overnight. I wind up, as I was not totally dressed, I, one of my soldiers, allowed me to put on his coat and his pants, and I was able to hide out. And next day, I am found by these Texians who are searching for the Mexicans that escaped the battle. They bring me back into the Texian camp. I do not let them know who I am. Unfortunately, when I re-arrive into the camp, there is some of my soldiers and officers recognize me and begin to stand at attention giving away who I am. And you're dressed as a soldier, right? That is correct. Okay. I'm dressed as a regular soldier. I'm brought into camp. They recognize me, stand to attention, and basically give away who I am. I am then taken over to Sam Houston, and Sam Houston would force me to sign what was called the Treaty of Velasco. What his intentions were was to forced me to send the rest of my army back, knowing that if my army would arrive, he was still outnumbered, and that my armies could still defeat him. So he asked me to send back my forces, because if I did not, he would kill me and the 600 Mexican prisoners he had taken. So it was either sign the document or everybody dies. Correct. Sam Houston hoped that with me signing this document, that the independence of Texas would be recognized by Mexico. This was not the case because I made sure that the document was significantly altered before I would sign it. So what a lot of people don't know today is that there were actually two treaties of Velasco, a public treaty and there was another treaty. People believe this, and I've heard this in Mexico. People believe that I signed 
Texas over to the Americanos. I did not do that. If you look at the Treaty of Velasco, you will see that the only thing that I agreed upon was to speak on their behalf to the Mexican government because I was no longer part of the government. As a prisoner of war, I no longer have any say in my country. So I basically said, I will speak on your behalf to the Mexican government. But I did not sign anything that said Texas is now an independent nation. Well, you were always finding ways around things, that's for sure. I have a question. When Sam Houston attacked, he attacked at the perfect time because you weren't ready. Perfect time for him. If he had maybe attacked at a different time where your men were ready and the horses were ready and everybody was ready to fight, then the outcome may have gone the other way. Oh, senor, I have no doubt it would have been a different outcome. He would have yeah. been defeated. Yeah, it he would not like... have been able to stand against a regular army. They would have been defeated. That's what it sounds like. So my question is this. Why are you waiting? Why did you not attack? Was that the mistake that you made? Because the waiting is what, is what killed your men because you guys needed to attack. Isn't, is that right? I did not believe that we had enough men to attack. I did not know his numbers at the time. That was a guess. That's what he had. He could have had more. But remember, they're hiding in the trees. So I don't know exactly what his numbers look like. I, was, I have to admit, I was scared, not knowing what his numbers. That's like I said before, I wasn't able to sleep because I was afraid of him attacking and us not having enough men to face them. When Cos arrives with his reinforcements, I felt a little more at ease, but still wanted to have a bigger force. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so then you escape, or I mean, well, you escaped for the moment, and then you're in one of your soldiers' outfits, and you hid in the marsh, and they found you. I had read one other time that there was another time where you escaped some battle but didn't you dress in women's clothes? Did this happen in some battle? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, uh, I have to ask a question like that, so forgive me. We have to go back to what I said before. I always did what I had to do for victory. So there is this rumor that I was in a home, and this is during one of the revolutions in Mexico, and one of the revolutionary armies, one of the armies, was searching for me, and, and they break into the house that I stay sleeping in, and I see them. I wrap the blanket around my head and basically start screaming like a wild woman and run out of the room, and I am able to get away. So this is not the only time that I do this. There is this time where I, I dressed as a woman. Doing, my friend, as I mentioned before, friend uh, Vicente Guerrero, I was trying to support him for president, and many of the other armies inside Mexico were against him. I was battling these armies. I dressed as a woman to see the enemy positions more clearly. I rode into town dressed as a woman and looked at the, in my enemy's defenses, which gave me an edge when we faced them in battle the next day. There's also a time that I dressed as a monk and entered the convent of Sanso, I remember, to <laughs> capture my adversary, General Calderon. Unfortunately, General Calderon was not in the church at the time. But of course, there was, the church still had some money in their treasury, so we made sure to take that in <laughs> payment. 
But uh, as I said before, there's, there were many times that I've had to use my, my abilities to, to win victory. But there's a time at the Battle of, of Tampico, which is probably my highest moment. The Battle of Tampico of 1829 is where I will become a rising star in my country. Because I, this is when Spain is trying to reconquer Mexico. And I am able to push them back. What a lot of people don't know is that I was very good at keeping the Spanish in the port. And why that was an advantage for us is what people don't know about Veracruz is that there are so many diseases coming in from all the different people who come from all over the world. Oh, yeah. Unless you live here, unless you are from this area, you will get sick from the black vomit and die. My troops from Veracruz can handle anything. They are my best troops I would take with me everywhere, knowing that they could handle these. So when the Spanish are there, I am able to tell them, look, across on this other side of the hill, I have reinforcements of 3,000 troops. Do you really want to advance your troops and face my army? It was an absolute lie. I had forged documents to show them, but these were the things that helped me win. Push the Spanish back. They believed they were outnumbered, and they decided to leave. Incredible. Full advantage. These would have been some useful tools to use in government, maybe to bluff in government a little bit to end some of the corruption and maybe get some of these taxes through that would allow the government to get on track. Politics. An illusion to note. Yeah. You don't like the politics, do you? No, sir. Absolutely not. Well, thank God, since you don't like the politics, that you only chose to be the president 11 times. <laughs> it's just... It's incredible to me. I can understand. You just keep trying to get back and do some good for your country. What is your standing with the Mexican government right now? Because you're still in Cuba right now in exile. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. I'm still trying to get myself back into Mexico. And the reason I am not unable to return is Benito Juarez, the president of Mexico. He's the first president in our country who who came from a lower class. He does not deserve to be where he is at. As he came into power, he decided to take away from many of the families who were prominent in Mexico. He has decided to take away my lands, and take my pension away, take my properties away, and keep me exiled from my country, from my home. Did he, he do this to other wealthy people or yes, people that had did. property? Yes, he did. Many of my supporters, many people of wealth, he decided to take from them. And what I did not understand is he takes from the wealthy and, and he should have used this money to pay off the French. But he does not. He allows the French to come in, bring in their Maximiliano. And now I am being called a traitor because I had some correspondence with Maximiliano. I was basically playing the man. I just wanted him to know. I wanted to see how he would feel about me coming back into Mexico. And so 
supporting his reign, but it was just, it was a ploy. I was, my intentions were to get back into Mexico and take back the government and push the French, who I could not stand, and push them out of Mexico. And then deal with Juarez también. They have no love for How do the Mexican people feel about you right now then? Do they think that you're a traitor? Do you have a lot of people in Mexico that would support you if you would come back? There have been so many lies about me. And people are believing those lies. The only people who truly support me, the people of my home, Veracruz, who have always supported me. They're the only ones who truly support me. I do have some followers in Mexico City, but it is small because, as I said, I have been labeled as the reason why so many things have gone wrong the last few years. Looking back at all of your time, it seems that there have been a lot of moments where your timing was just perfect. You know, when you chose to switch sides, when you chose to support somebody, when you told the lie or try to confuse an adversary, like, for example, with the 3,000 troops on the hill. But I'm guessing that after all of this time, both in military and politics, that there are regrets that you have, changes that you would have made if you could have done them again. What are the things that come to mind that if you were going to do them differently, what would they be? That was a huge mistake, not being prepared with my army at full force to face Houston. I had intentions to, after that debacle, and I got back into Mexico, to rebuild the army and take Texas back. But unfortunately, that does not happen. So that is my biggest regret. still weighs heavily on my mind. What about in the government? In all the different times that you had the presidency, what, was, what were some of the mistakes in government that you'd like to redo? I wouldn't say there were mistakes. I just wasn't able to unite the states of our country. That was the biggest problem. Our inability, as mentioned before, to create this national identity as a nation. That would be my mistake. If you're going to call it a mistake, that's what it would be. We were unable to form this national identity. Revolution after revolution, even when we were fighting the Americanos, fighting the French, fighting the Spanish. I had generals and politicians against me, against us. Even when I'm no longer in office, you have, you have the Battle of Puebla. I don't know if you're familiar with General, General Zaragoza, who was in charge of the Mexicanos, Republican Army, fighting against the French. And everyone told him, you're going to, be, you're going to lose the French have the best army in the world. And Zaragoza said, we're going to fight. I'm going to, I'm going to take the people, the farmers, the field workers, and we will fight for Mexico. The townspeople of Zaragoza, the rich, the upper class, had already given up. They were inviting the French into the town, inviting them to, to drink with them, to lay with their women. And it disgusted me when I heard these stories. And Zaragoza says, no, we're going to fight them. And he fights the number one army in the world and defeats the Battle of Puebla with pitchforks. The townspeople, the field workers, win this battle. 
against the number one army in the world. Wow. And this takes place on Cinco de Mayo, which may be familiar to you. Is that right? So that's what Cinco de Mayo was? Yes, sir. What is your, what is your impression of the United States? The United States. Thieves. Clear and simple. Thieves. Out to take everything and anything they can. That's it. Are, are the, so you would characterize the United States as dishonest at the highest level? Yes. Did you have any dealing? I know you had mentioned Polk, President Polk. Did you have any dealings with any American presidents that were more honorable? Actually, I did. So after I am taken prisoner by Sam Houston, I will spend six months in captivity. Many of his men wanted to kill me. I wasn't treated very well. But eventually Sam Houston, and I have to give him credit for this, he is the reason why I stayed alive after San Jacinto. He then decides to release me, send me to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Andrew Jackson. So I'm taken to Washington, D.C. I am recognized as the president of Mexico. I am treated like a dignitary that I was. And I attended the parties. I attended functions in, in Washington, D.C. And I must say, it was a very pleasant experience. And I sat down with President Jackson. And Jackson basically spoke to me and, and treated me with great respect. And his intentions were he wanted to talk to me about buying portions of northern Mexico, California, Arizona, and these were things that I said, this is all great, but there's absolutely nothing that I could sign or, or do that could make this happen for you. I'm no longer, at this point, part of the government, but since you've treated me with such kindness, I'm sure I will go back to Mexico City and talk to the government about your intentions and what you would like to do. If you, give me some, if you give me some money again, <laughs> some traveling money. <laughs> no, not this time. I was lucky to get away with my life after this encounter, so I did not require any financial gain. So that's interesting because when you call America thieves, he acted, sounded like he acted very honorably. He did, but again, I understood what they were trying to do. He obviously wanted, wanted this land, and, and you will see, yes, when President Polk gets into power, what his true intentions are. He baits my country into a war, literally crossing the border in Texas and claiming that this was the actual border when it was not. When all Americanos and Mexicanos knew that the border in Texas and the West's River was the border, not the Rio Grande. He crosses in the West's River puts troops on the other side of the Nueces River, forcing my Mexican, the Mexican army to attack and face off because they have crossed Mexican land. Remember, Mexico never recognizes Texas as an independent nation. All right, I'm with you. So what about, so I know how you feel about the United States, and I'm pretty sure I understand how you feel about France. How do you feel about Spain? Kind of torn between my early beginnings as a Spanish cadet and 
being a Spanish military, but well, things have to change, right? So I understood when the time had come to change sides and saw my opportunity, and I ran with it. I took it because I realized that Spain could no longer manage Mexico. There was no way they could continue as many of the forces here were turning sides. It was just a matter of time till my army would be defeated and then I would be stuck, either a prisoner of war or sent to Spain, which I knew nothing about living in Spain, being born in Mexico and living in Mexico all my life. It was the right thing to do at the time that it happened. If the Americans are thieves, though, and the French are French, I mean, that's enough to describe the French. How would you describe the Spanish, though? What are they? You know, the Spanish were a world conqueror. But like with all world conquerors, eventually you cannot maintain what you've conquered. I see. And that's basically what happened to Spain is they no longer could maintain South America. And they lost it all. So I see them negatively, not necessarily. As I said before, they were a conqueror. I don't see anything wrong with conquering weaker nations. However, that's what happens to us with the United States. But again, this was my home. This is my land. I had to stand up and fight. I was ready to fight. When I hear what's happening, the Mexican-American War, and I'm in exile, I just knew I had to get back into Mexico to help my country. There was a treaty that was signed, and I think the name of it was the Treaty of Messiah, which had something to do with something called the Gadsden, Gadsden Purchase. Do you know anything about that? That is the one where they say that I sold land to the United States. Is that what we were talking about earlier? Was that the same thing, or that was a different time, wasn't it? That is a different time. There was land that I sold to the United States. However, this was done, again, not for my own financial gain. This was to help build the treasury. Unfortunately, my government and my people look at it as a stain upon my time in office, as something that I did for personal gain. I assure you, none of those funds went into my pocket. It's Why? not something I'd really like to talk about. Okay. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about that's okay. I want to thank you for all this time that you've given me today because I, to be quite honest with you, before this conversation, I believed that you cared about your country and you were trying to do the best for your country, but I didn't really know who you were, and I feel like I do now. I have just a couple last questions. The first one is you had mentioned the Catholic Church several times, and you had said you were talking about how the requirements of people coming down to Texas that they had to become Roman Catholics and I think you said that they had to learn to speak Spanish. Is that correct by the way? That is correct. And which of course they totally ignored that, right? Both those rules? You are correct. Do Americans follow any rules? <laughs> Not really, do they? No. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. So what is your relationship with the Catholic Church? I mean here you're involved in these wars and you love to be in battle, and there's all this killing and executing, and yet it seems like you have some strong beliefs or that's important to you in the church. What is your relationship with the church? I would not say that I, uh, at my age now, 
74 years old. I, I, I can't say that I was an extremely religious man. However, my connection to the church was always there because, as I mentioned, you have to remember, the church is one of the most powerful institutions in Mexico. They have always had wealth, prestige, and their ability to be involved in politics was always something we had to honor and keep close. So my connection to the church was always strong. And I, as I mentioned before, that's probably the reason why I've been in power so many times, was my good relationship with the church and my good relationship with the army. Those two things. And the fact that I mentioned earlier that I've not, never really been a true politician. I did not cling to one side or the other. I was always trying to find what was best for the country. So I had no political connections to these groups, these people trying to make changes. Did the church fund your building of the army at different times? Yes. Actually, the Texas campaign, I was able to secure a couple of loans from the church. However, at very high interest rates, I would not like to talk about that. Okay. Nobody wants to talk about high interest rates. You, you know, I, uh, I'm going to ask you this one more time, and forgive me. I know you said you, you don't want to talk about this, but I can't get it out of my head, so forgive me for asking this, but in the Gadsden purchase, you did sell some of Mexico, and I know you were doing that f to get money for your country, and you're saying absolutely none of that money went in your pocket. Is, it, is that something that you regret, selling a piece of Mexico? It was something that had to be done at the time. Do I regret we lost this land? Yes. But again, like I said before, this was a time in our country that we needed the funds. You had plenty of land. You needed the money. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. I, in Cuba, where you are right now, do you still uh, participate in cockfighting? <laughs> Absolutely. Did you enjoy I, that? Throughout my life, I have been a fan of the cockfights. The bullfights, I, I have been known to, to spend a lot of time with simpler pleasures of life. As I mentioned before, I really don't come from the upper class of society, and these simpler things have always impressed me. I would travel with my fighting cocks. I even brought them with me on the Texas campaign of 1835-36. And we did have a few cockfights along the campaign. Is On the field? You were doing cockfighting in the field? Yes, <laughs> in camp. Okay. All right, my last question, and again, I just, I'm so thankful for your time. My last question is, at some point in one of your presidencies, it was either the 7th or the 11th or the 9th or the 5th, I don't know which one it was. You're going to have to forgive me. They're hard for me to keep track of. At some point... My understanding is that you dug up or had somebody dig up your leg that you lost that was buried somewhere and then that you encased it in a glass case or something. Is there any truth to this? And if so, why did you do that? It is true. I wanted my country to remember the sacrifice that I made 
for my country. I lost my leg in battle, and it needed to be remembered. So we had a parade for my leg in Mexico City, took it to the cemetery, had it buried. Unfortunately, a few years later, when I'm exiled again, my leg will be dug up and taken to the streets of Mexico City. It was a horrible thing to hear that had happened. But again, as I said before, I've had many political enemies, people who, who wanted to put my name in the mud and make me seem that I was not a good Mexican. So they drug your leg throughout the city? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That, your leg has done a lot of traveling without you. Yes. <laughs> well, President Santana, I thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that you would like to say last? I mean, there's a lot of people that will hear this that will have a very good understanding now of the kind of person that you were because I think there's a lot of people that don't know and I think that they will see you in a different light that would be very positive. Is there anything you'd like to add? There is, actually. And this, I want people to remember me. I don't know how many years I have left. I have lived a very long life. Uh, I've outlived many of my enemies. And I am thankful, even though things didn't always turn out the way I would like them to have turned out. But I was a soldier. I was a landowner, politician, who only wanted to be remembered as a good Mexican. I wish to be judged merely as I am, not as my enemies would have me be. If I were to ask for a title, it would be that of a patriot, Antonio Lopez de Santana. Well, I think that people are going to get that message loud and clear. I thank you again for your time and for everything that you've done to history, and I, I wish you the best in your remaining years. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I am a firm believer that few people will do something wrong and know they are doing something wrong. Santa Ana was not a coward, nor was he likely a traitor. When he dressed up as a dragoon to escape Sam Houston's attack, was that the right thing to do? I mean, it's not exactly a captain going down with the ship moment, but he could have easily justified the need to escape so that he could fight for his country another day. They needed him. Even if his soldiers were being mowed down, he could run, live, and fight another day. When Texas was threatened to leave Mexico, he fought to keep it together. Yet, when he needed cash, he was willing to sell it later. Santa Ana was a principled man, yet sometimes opportunity and necessity got in the way of those principles. Thanks for listening to the Calling History Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history. History.